Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, said the woman, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, What do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now those who reap draw their wages. Even now they harvest the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard it for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Over a year ago, I arrived in D.C. and I met the very first person in real life from WCF. Uh, This man is standing beside me today. His name is Jim Martin, if you don't know him. Uh, I was immediately impressed by your warmth and your joy and his amazing selfies he sends in WhatsApp. And so um, we're really glad to have you here with us. Uh, If you don't know Jim, he has been an elder here and a longtime friend of WCF. He currently serves as the VP of Spiritual Formation at IJM. Uh, He's here together with his wife, Jenna, and his daughter, Clara, and Aiden and Charlotte are at home. Yeah, okay. So we're so glad to have you here, and let me pray for you as you share the word with us. Thank you. Jesus, we thank you for Jim. We thank you for the gift of his life to uh, WCF in the past and today as he shares this word. We ask that you would speak to each one of us through your word, that we would be reminded of the beautiful dignity of being called your children because of your great love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Our lives, for some reasons, we can catch up on if you're, if you're interested in, but also just this sense that uh, we're living in an age that just seems hopelessly, uh, hopelessly divided, hopeless, hopelessly uh, polar. And it, uh, I'm, I'm so tempted to think that this must be something unique that's happening in this country, uh, but then my friends from around the world will remind me, oh, no, no, this is part of a global phenomenon that's occurring in, in many other places. I'm tempted to think that this is uh, sort of unique in history, but then I read passages like today's and I realize, oh, no, no, like the, like the writer of Ecclesiastes said so long ago, there really is nothing new under the sun. But it is good to be back with a community of people that I feel known and loved by. Um, and I, I want to take a deeper look into this passage just from that perspective. How is it that Jesus navigated uh, uh, what might have, must have seemed hopelessly paralyzed or paral- uh, polarized, pardon me, world? Um, and how, how was it that he actually engaged in his world with an open heart and a sense of hope? So to do that, I'm going to back up first, and I'm going to put today's passage in some context. And to do that, I want to take you to the map of first century Israel. Samaria is the land between Galilee on the north and Judea on the south. And as commentators like N.T. Wright will remind us, there's an important backstory here. 
There was a deep racially-based hatred between Jews and Samaritans that had been kindled over many, many generations. The epicenter of this conflict seems to date back to when the Jews returned from exile in Babylon to their land to find the Samaritans living in the middle of it and not welcoming them back, and further, the Samaritans themselves claiming to be the true descendants of Abraham. This, of course, uh, results in, a, in a, uh, a hatred that gets kindled over multiple generations. The Samaritan hatred of the Jews often boiled over into violence as bands of traveling Jews were sometimes attacked as they traveled between Galilee and Judea. And from the Jewish perspective, these Samaritans were nothing but theologically confused, heresy-believing, violent upstart half-breeds, mudbloods. I don't imagine that conflicts like this have changed all that much in the last few thousand years. So I fully expect that the polarization, the racialization, and the weaponization of hatred was every bit as vitriolic back then as it is today. So that's just a brief overview to set the stage. As we pick up the story from where Andrew led us two weeks ago in his sermon on John, John 1, map-wise where that story lands is Jesus begins calling his disciples and they first travel to the general area of Galilee. So we can highlight that on the map for you. It's at the top. Then chapter 2 opens with the, the story of the wedding at Cana. Just south of the word Galilee on the map, you'll find the town of Cana. After Jesus performs the miracle there, uh, the, this, the passage tells us that he then traveled to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Then Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Uh, This would have had for the Passover, and the normal route he would have taken would have been to travel from Capernaum and go around the Sea of Galilee and then southward through the Jordan Valley to Jericho, and then from there up to Jerusalem, literally uphill to Jerusalem. Now, I mention all this because this is the normal path that a traveling group of Jewish people would have taken. It's longer, but it's this way you don't have to go around, you don't have to go through Samaria. You get to go around it, which is because Samaria is both unsavory and potentially dangerous. And given all that racial strife, it's just how things were done. It was a matter of propriety. So it's fascinating to notice that starting in chapter 4, verse 3, John says the following Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan town called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. So John says Jesus had to go through Samaria. And it's likely that John mentions this fact simply so that we don't miss the fact that he actually didn't have to go through Samaria. That's what, a, an early, that's, that's what his first century readers or hearers would have said instantly, like, wait a minute. He doesn't have to go. Almost nobody goes through Samaria. He doesn't have to go through Samaria. And as all this begins to unfold, I think we'll notice that Jesus is working from a completely different set of commitments than most of his contemporary Jewish peers, especially the elite teachers of the law. In other words, he doesn't have to go through Samaria because it's the most direct route. He has to go there for some other reason. So after this encounter with Nicodemus that Neil preached about last week, Jesus and the disciples head almost directly north into Samaria to the outskirts of the city of Sychar. And then tired from his journey, Jesus sits down at Jacob's well, and the disciples continue on into the city to buy some takeout. 
John tells us that this happens at, or about, at about noon, or the sixth hour. So, for first century hearers or readers, this scene is already tense. But it's about to get a whole lot more uncomfortable as a woman comes out of the city alone to draw water at the well. Now, you have to understand that in a strange parallel to our modern world, many religious men of Jesus' time would not have allowed themselves to be alone with a Jewish woman, much less a Samaritan woman. So the most, relig- so most religious readers would have said that Jesus should have just gotten up and walked away when the woman approached the well. But Jesus does the opposite. He engages her in conversation. He asks her for a drink. This was something that would have been tantamount to flirting in Jesus' day. It simply was wrong. In fact, almost everything about this scene is wrong. Most women would have approached the task of water gathering either early in the morning or late in the afternoon when the weather was cool and more forgiving. This woman, for some reason, has come at the time of day that is most hot and the most uncomfortable when she's least likely to meet anyone else at the well especially anyone that knows her or her personal history or her tarnished reputation. But it's going to turn out that Jesus already knows all of this and that Jesus is probably enjoying some of the tension that he's creating because, as it turns out, Jesus cares more about people than propriety. Often to the intense discomfort of those around him, especially the religious elite, Jesus cares more about people than propriety. And I love how the disciples are thrust into the middle of these situations. If the disciples had been standing there, and they'll be returning shortly, if they had been standing there, though, they might be thinking, who is this Jesus talking to this woman? He seems different from the Jesus that cleared out the temple a few days ago. Is, is, is he flirting with her? And this wouldn't be the last time his followers encountered Jesus seeming to invite scandal. There'll be that scene where Jesus allows his feet to be washed with perfume by a woman of questionable character. That, uh, we'll actually see that later in John 12. Or the time that Jesus let a woman weep all over his feet and then wash them and dry them with her hair. All at an intimate dinner party. That happens in Luke 7. These are scandalous scenes. And it prompts the question for us this morning, how is it that we are often tempted to do the reverse to care more about propriety than people. And what havoc is wrought when we do that, when we give in to that temptation? People are marginalized, dehumanized, ostracized. Jesus is forever crossing those invisible boundaries of propriety. It can be easy to underestimate just how Christ-like these actions can be. Things like sitting at the wrong table at lunch having a profoundly human interaction with a person who is suffering chronic illness, welcoming the stranger and the alien. It's so easy to miss how uncomfortable these scenes are. So when the woman at the the well is asked for the drink, she calls Jesus out. Seemingly as surprised as a first century reader would have been, the woman responds, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman, of Samaria, right? She calls out directly the implicit layers of scandal that are sort of embedded in that brief conversation. 
Now, it's impossible to know if she's just being coy or if she's simply surprised that Jesus is stepping further and further into this scandal. For a devout Jew, the Samaritan woman herself would have been unclean. And the water vessel that she's using to take water from the well that she presumably would have given to Jesus to drink from, the vessel itself would have been unclean. It would have made Jesus unclean, ceremonially speaking. The prevailing understanding in Jewish culture was that uncleanness was infectious or contagious. In other words, if something or someone clean came in contact with something or someone unclean, then the uncleanness was spread from the unclean object to the clean object. For anyone familiar with the Old Testament uh, and the laws of ritual cleansing, this is sort of a no-brainer. Sacred objects needed to be kept away from common objects. Priests needed to stay away from unclean people or things in order to remain ritually clean themselves. All through the Gospels, though, we encounter a Jesus who seems unconcerned about the idea of ritual cleanliness. In Mark 1, Jesus touches a leper, and rather than being unclean, becoming unclean or leprous himself, it is the leper who is cleansed and healed. In Mark 5, Jesus enters the room of a dead child, which should have made him ritually unclean. Instead, it is the girl who receives from Jesus new life and health. And this scene in John 4 is just another version of the same story. Propriety said that Jesus would be sullied by the interaction with the woman. Jesus, on the other hand, seems to believe that she might be cleansed by her interaction with him. This idea has actually already been introduced in John's gospel. Way at the beginning, the opening lines of the first chapter in John 1.5, John proclaims this, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. In this scene at the well, Jesus is live, the living proclamation of this verbal announcement. And the proclamation is this, light is more contagious than darkness. It's light that controls darkness. If you want dark in a room, you don't turn on the dark, you turn off the light. Jesus fully expects, he lives this out so beautifully, he fully expects that in his interaction with the Samaritan woman, it's actually his righteousness that will be contagious. He's not running the risk of, risk of contamination. She's running the risk of having her life utterly transformed. How often do we react in fear that the opposite might be true? That we might be contaminated by darkness? Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about crossing over boundaries into sin and disobedience. What I'm talking about is trusting Jesus when he calls us to move toward darkness and participate in shining the light of his kingdom. How often do we give in to fear and choose our own version of security instead? Returning back to our story, this conversation that ensues between Jesus and the woman, for me, is actually kind of fun. As Neil pointed out in his sermon last week, many scenes in John's Gospel are full of this hidden meaning and double entendre, and this conversation is just a wonderful example of that. The woman asks, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus essentially answers, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd be the one asking me for a drink and I'd give you living water. The Samaritan woman's, to the Samaritan woman's ears, this phrase living water would simply have meant running water, 
right? The kind of water that's not stagnant that you get from a well uh, or a pond, but the kind of water that is, is running, that has life to it. And she replies, essentially, um, you don't even have a bucket. So how do you propose to get this living water of yours? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who put this well here in the first place? I love that she responds in kind, right? She's courageously willing to go toe-to-toe with this guy at the well. I love that. So Jesus, progressing, deepening the meaning of what living water could possibly signify, he says, yes, this well is great, but everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. People who drink of the water that I give them never become thirsty again. In fact, the opposite. They themselves become springs of water that gush with life for eternity. And now she seems intrigued, right? Sir, I'll take some of that water. Never being thirsty again would be convenient. It would keep me from having to come back to this forsaken watering hole here. Then Jesus drops the bomb. He says, sure, go get your husband and come back. Now, up until this moment, this conversation might just have felt something like a little witty sort of sparring match between these two people that have met at the well. Jesus is speaking in half riddles, and the woman is pushing back, but Jesus definitely turns a corner here. He indicates that he's interested in a much more personal and meaningful conversation with this woman. And in doing so, I see Jesus taking her very, very seriously. He's giving her a choice. She can respond with honesty and vulnerability, or she can respond with avoidance and deceit. Now, let me give you a sense of what, be, might, what might be running through her mind as she's sort of calculating what her response should be to Jesus' statement here. Go get your husband and come back. It should be noted, as many commentators have pointed out, that in first century Jewish culture, culture women were not permitted to divorce men. But men were allowed to divorce their wives for the slightest perceived infraction. What this means is that this woman was powerless and without recourse as she was cast off by five successive men. And perhaps now she's given up entirely on the idea of marriage. These factors add up to this hellish, stalled existence for her. As a woman who's not connected by law to a man, she on her own cannot own property, which is the primary way of establishing financial and food security for her in the first century. But she can't do that. So now she's stuck in this horrible existence where she's just parked in one place with no hope of moving. She's going to this well every day, possibly going there at noon instead of in the early morning or the evening just to be sure she's not going to meet any of the town gossips at the well because her story becoming known has been painful to her over all these years. And the ridicule that she's received has been so painful over all, all these years. So Jesus' prompt to go get her husband pokes at the very heart of her challenging life. So I find it all the more impressive that she responds with the first kernels of vulnerability in this conversation. I have no husband, she says. And then deepening the conversation still further, Jesus replies, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And I just love her response. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. But in my mind's eye, though, I can see her face flush with the familiar embarrassment or maybe even anger. 
of having her private wounds laid public yet again. Somewhat flustered, I think, the woman tries to lead Jesus down a series of theological rabbit trails, offering observations and asking questions about the differences between Jewish and Samaritan doctrine. I think we do this a lot, too, to sort of avoid the main issue. At the end of that, the woman says, I know this, that the Messiah is coming, and he will proclaim all things to us. And then in this astoundingly remarkable, rare, direct statement about his true identity, Jesus answers, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. And then, at this precise moment, the disciples come back. And this feels Shakespearean to me, right? It's sort of like there's all this tension building up in the narrative, and all of a sudden we cut to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. It's fascinating. And, and with their, uh, the disciples, with the sort of high emotional intelligence we've come to expect from these guys at this point in the story, they're astonished that he's speaking to a woman. So I'm guessing, likely reading the look on the disciples' faces, the woman chooses this moment to slip away and to go back to the city. But John leaves this wonderful clue about where she's at as she slips away. He says, this little detail he includes is uh, that she leaves her water jug behind. Right? The whole purpose that she's come to the well is to gather water. And Jesus has offered her something different. So as she slips away to go back to the city, she leaves the water jug behind. Perhaps intimating at the idea that she's not going to need it anymore. So, also, I love the contrast of the kind of conversation the disciples have with Jesus when they return compared to the conversation they have just interrupted between Jesus and the woman at the well. In verse 27 says this, Just then the disciples came, and they were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, What do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Now, it fascinates me that none of them had the courage to say out loud what they were all thinking. It's a marked contrast between the woman who chooses vulnerability and the disciples who choose not to be vulnerable. Instead, they're like, uh, if you read on, they're like, Jesus, have you had anything to eat? You know, you should really eat something. And in my mind's eye, they're saying that with their mouths full. You know, it's like this hilarious sort of scene. And Jesus replies that he is feeling quite satisfied by the conversation that they've just interrupted. Right? He's got food to eat, work to do, that the disciples still don't quite, aren't quite tuned in with. And he's sitting there quite satisfied with this interaction that he's just had with the woman. And then missing the point again, the disciples are like, did somebody else bring him something to eat? What's going on here? Meanwhile, the woman, in her exuberance, is running headlong into the city, straight into the crowds of people she's been trying to avoid straight into the place where she's been scorned and derided, and she's crying out, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. The disciples are just standing there flat-footed, only beginning to comprehend the true identity of Jesus. And this woman, on the other hand, is shouting from the rooftops that Jesus might actually be the Messiah that they're all waiting for. Jesus had received this woman's vulnerability and offered her dignity. He took her seriously as a valuable image of God-bearing soul. He interacted with her without objectifying her. 
He gave her the opportunity to see his true identity, and now she's being transformed into the elegant signpost pointing all in Sychar to Jesus. This makes me wonder about myself. How often do I choose not to voice my real questions? How often do I shrink back in prayer from a full sense of vulnerable honesty with God, about my fears, about my failures? And how often do I therefore miss Jesus' offer to enter more fully into the dignity of my true image of God-bearing self? Now, I have this mental picture of the final scene that Jesus is standing there with his back to the city and he's talking to the disciples at the well and he's telling them all about the harvest, that the harvest is coming. And there's these wonderful, these wonderful biblical images about abundance uh, that come from the far, farming culture. We get these, this Old Testament idea that the, the, the most abundant picture people can imagine is when the sower overtakes the reaper. This idea that you'll still be reaping the fields because they'll be still rich with harvest when it comes time to plant in the next season, right? You see that picture of abundance. And I think there's a reference to that that Jesus is making. Like, if you will look around you, you will see that the fields are ripe with harvest. The sower is overtaking the reaper. So he's explaining all this. He's telling them that the harvest is coming, that indeed the fields are ripe with harvest. And just as he's saying this, the disciples are looking over his shoulder at the fields behind him, between Sychar and, and where they're standing at the well. And, and the land seems to be teeming, to be swaying back and forth as if, as if ripe grain is just sort of blowing in the breeze and bending back and forth. And then they look more carefully, and it's not grain. It's actually the people of the city teeming out through the fields to come and to meet with Jesus, the man who told the woman everything that she had ever done. This story, to me, is just such a great example of how Jesus enters what seems like a polarized, dead-end, stuck situation and is willing to engage it with an open heart. And he does this by caring more about people than propriety, by knowing that light is more contagious than darkness, and by receiving vulnerability and returning dignity. So I want to revisit just a few questions based on these ideas as we head toward confession ourselves. I'm going to read a few prompts. I don't want you to try to remember them all. I just want you to listen for one that might sort of catch in your own spirit and ponder that as we move toward confession together. So... What are the ways that we, as humans, are prone to caring more for propriety than for people? How do we allow our social discomfort to prevent us from more deeply and meaningfully loving people? How do we allow public opinion to substitute for our own good, Christ-like judgment? Or... What are the ways that we still fear that darkness is more contagious than light? How do we allow fear to build patterns of avoidance in us? Or, in what ways do we shield our vulnerability from Jesus in an effort to try to find dignity for ourselves? How does this contribute to the challenges that we encounter? How does this contribute to our feeling perhaps less known by Jesus? Let me pray for us as we ponder these things and move toward 
confession. Jesus, so often as we read these stories and and as we see you interacting so beautifully and so wisely and so lovingly with people, at least I tend to sort of wish I could be that person in that interaction, that I could be um, seen by you that clearly or known by you or loved by you in those ways. And I I confess, God, that I often, um, often the challenge for me is mustering the courage to be vulnerable enough before you to actually be that person in the story. So as we move through this service, as we move through confession and through communion, God, would you give us the courage to be vulnerable with you? Would you give us courage to hear the places where you are calling us to participate in shining light into darkness? God, would you give us the the strength to see people as more important than propriety in the life situations that we navigate? And would you guide us as we, as we enter into this prayerful reflection? In Jesus' name.